Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. We are currently celebrating the Advent season together as a church, remembering the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of God's promise and prophecies. We pause to reflect on His arrival and long for His glorious return. As we've been kind of getting ready for this Christmas season, we've been going through this journey of Advent, and we've seen that Jesus is, he's our peace, he's our hope, he's our joy, and, and lastly, what we're going to look at this, more, or this evening is that Jesus is Lord of all. And when we say that Jesus is Lord of all, here's what we mean, that Jesus is the King. He's the king that you and I need. He is the Lord of everything, the universe, and he is the Lord of you and me, regardless of whether or not we choose to bow our knee to him. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is Lord of all. But the question is is this that I want to answer this evening. Why should we bow our knees to this king? Why should we actually worship Jesus as Lord of all, as King of kings and Lord of lords? And I want to give you three reasons, and we're going to see it in Luke chapter 2, for why we should actually believe and have hope in Jesus as Lord of all. And the first is this, that he is the king that arranges history. He arranges everything. He's in control. Secondly, that he is the king who enters the story to identify with anybody. And thirdly, He's the king who invites you into his kingdom. He invites everyone. He is the king who's in control. He is the king who is relatable. And he is the king who is accessible. He is the king that you need. And so Christmas is more than just opening presents and warm fuzzies. It is about celebrating the king that has come into the world. And as I've been preparing and studying this passage in Luke. I, I'm going to just tell you, there's some insights in here. There's some nuggets that I'm going to sprinkle in here. And, and I want to make sure you get your money's worth. So I've got slides, people, slides with a timeline. It's going to be amazing. We'll go quick, but this truly, I believe, can change your life if you actually believe and see the King Jesus for who he really is. In Luke chapter 2, it opens up this way. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. It's interesting how Luke opens up this passage. And he opens up by talking about people that you can research in world history. See, look at how he opens up this section. It's not about um, a fantasy fiction in a land far, far away. He talks about historical figures that you can research, and I researched them. These people actually existed in world history. And just to kind of give you kind of a framework for what he's talking about, he's talking about um, Caesar, an emperor, over the Roman Empire. At this time in world history, Rome was the most powerful empire in its day, and it He ruled Caesar over a vast region, and I'm going to show you that region here, just a little picture of this region that was ruled by Rome um, during this time in the first century. Um, It goes all the way up all over Europe, North Africa, over to Israel. It is a vast region. Uh, Can I put it in in, in perspective today? It would be a a, a region um, larger than the United States. 
In, in, in ancient times, ruling that region was extremely challenging. And, and Rome, the Roman Empire, was started at about 770 BCE. Uh, that was um, when, when they believed that two brothers, Remus and Romulus, kind of came together and began to form the first kind of inklings of the Roman Empire around 770 BCE. And when we pick up the story here, it's in about 31 BCE that Caesar began his rule over this region. And he was extremely successful. He was extremely powerful. And he conquered this region uh, in a way that had never been done before. And he was so powerful, so successful, they gave Caesar several titles. They called him Augustus, which means supreme one, sublime, or majestic one. In his 40 years of reign, he, he conquered this region and ruled it with an iron fist. And whatever Caesar said he wanted to do was done. Caesar could call the shots. And Caesar had a census that he declared. He said, I want everyone to pay me money for two major, major reasons. One, to, have, to continue this uh, military rule over this region. And the other was to, to basically pay homage to him so that he could spend this money in however he desired. One author, um, Jim Bishop, writes this. He says, in Rome, Caesar Augustus learned that many of his subjects were dishonest. He, his rule, he ruled the known world, but the amount of taxes were not commensurate with the number of subjects. And so he held a council in Rome, and his advisors told Caesar that he could uh, not levy an equitable tax until he had an accurate account of the entire population. And so he went in and he determined that everyone would go to their hometowns and be registered. Caesar issued this imperial script ordering all subjects to go. This, of course, would, work, um, would bring hardship on millions of people. In this two-week period of migration, it would upset the economic balance as these men left their work to travel to distant cities, but it had to be done. Caesar had issued a decree. And as the story starts in this little section, we see that Caesar is the one with glory. Caesar is the one with honor. Caesar, in many ways, seems like the king of kings and the lord of lords. He is the majestic one. He is Augustus. And he issues this decree right around 4 BCE and sends all of these people traveling across their homeland to go register to pay money to a military victor who's holding them hostage. And what's fascinating is that Caesar doesn't realize that he's merely a pawn in the history that God is weaving. He doesn't realize that he's one small speck in the world that God has been weaving through history. And let me show you this. See, Rome began around 770 BCE. Caesar did not come to power until 31 BCE. But there's a prophet Micah in the Old Testament who wrote around the era of 700 BCE when Rome was just a, a thought in someone's mind. A small speck, Micah speaks this. In Micah chapter 2, in chapter 5, verse 2, it says this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the class of Judah, from you shall come forth to me 
one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In 700 BCE, 700 years basically before Caesar would issue his edict sending all these people traveling, God had already predicted it. See, God already knew the details of history. And what Caesar is believing is that I'm calling the shots. I'm running the plays. I'm moving people where I want them. But God says, no, 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 no. What you're doing, what you think you're doing is moving people where you want them. But instead, you're moving people where I want them. You see, God's in control of everything. He's in control of world history, and he's arranging the pieces to accomplish his purpose. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, were living in Nazareth. There was no reason for them to go to Bethlehem until this edict came. And it says that Joseph was um, of the father, the lineage of David, David, the great king of old. And so he had to travel from Nazareth, a 90-mile journey, down to Bethlehem to obey Caesar? No, because it was part of a decree of God. See, Caesar's not calling the shots. God is moving all of history to his great end. He's arranging all the details to accomplish his purpose. Over this Christmas season, I have no doubt that you've had many details that you're trying to work through. You're trying to order all the right presents for everyone, or maybe you're, you still go shopping, like you, you're one of those people, and you don't do Amazon, you actually go to the stores. I prefer to go to the stores. And so you go, and you're getting everyone's presents, everything perfect. And I'll tell you what inevitably happens at some point along your Christmas shopping venture, and I'll just pr- prove it, pr- predict it for you. Um, something doesn't come through. Like, that gift didn't get delivered, and you're going to wrap that, um, that printout in the box of that Amazon gift that will come later on. And you're going to give it to someone under that tree. They're going to open it up. And I see some of you like these wry smiles like, mm-hmm, because I've done it. And, and you're, you you're going to give them that slip of paper and you're going to, hey, this is an IOU. I'm so sorry. My timing didn't work out. That's us. That's not God. See, God arranged all of human history. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to this small peasant couple who feels like someone else is calling the shots in their life. But what they don't realize is that God is arranging all of human history for this great end. Isaiah 46, 9 says this, I am the God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. No detail is missing in what God is weaving in history. And let me tell you what, neither are you a missing detail in God's story. See, the reason you're here this evening isn't because your mom wanted you to. It wasn't because your grandmother wanted you to do, to. And it wasn't because you just happened to be in Tomball over this Christmas season. God has orchestrated history so that you would be in this place because there's something that he wants you to grab tonight. And it's this, that he entered into human history on purpose. So not only is God arranging history, God is entering into the story. See, there's only one way for you and I to meet God. 
is if God writes himself into the story. C.S. Lewis in his book, um, Mere Christianity, writes this. There's only one way for us to, for, for Hamlet, a character in the story, to meet Shakespeare, the author of the story, is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. You may not know Hamlet and Shakespeare, but there's only one way for Harry Potter to meet J.K. Rowling, is if J.K. Rowling writes herself into the story of Harry Potter. And what we have here at the beginning in Luke chapter 2 is when God writes himself into the story. He shows who he is and what he's like. And I want you to see how he comes. It's fascinating. If you were to write the story of history, where would you write yourself coming into the story? What would the circumstances be? Think about it. If, if, if you're writing human history, like you have the ability, how would you write yourself into the story? You would probably write yourself into a sweet house. Um, you'll have a sweet ride waiting for you, depending on the era. Maybe you got a sweet horse, or maybe you got like a jaguar. I don't know. You got something nice. That's how we likely would write ourselves into the story. You see, if, if I was writing the story, I would have written myself into Caesar's house. See, Caesar had a, a, an amazing amazing palace. In fact, the phrase palace was, was first used to describe the Roman places which they lived. And I'll give you a couple images of what Caesar's home looked like, um, or you can visit it today. Um, it's, it's on um, Palpatine Hill, or, or Pal- Palatine Hill, and, and these are some of the ruins that are the structures of the house. You can go visit it today. It's, an, it's a massive um, complex and, and has a beautiful, um, go to the ne- next slide, you can see beautiful murals painted all over the walls and it, it's, it's immaculate. One other picture um, showing the, the gardens of, of this beautiful, beautiful home. It's a beautiful, picturesque estate on, on one of the seven beautiful hills in Rome and that's where Caesar set up his palace. That's where he is issuing these orders. But where was Jesus born? Chapter 2, verse 4 says, And and Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You see, when God put on flesh and entered the world, he didn't enter the palaces of Rome or the palaces of kings. He went to a little peasant woman. He went to a little peasant woman and said, To her, you, you, you are going to bear the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. G.K. Chesterton describes this contrast really well. He says this, the hands that had made the sun and stars were too small to reach the heads of the cattle. Omnipotence and impotence, divinity and infancy, Bethlehem is emphatically a place where extremes meet. God of human history became vulnerable. The eternal became a baby. The all-powerful became vulnerable. 
The wealthy entered poverty. Beauty became dingy. You see, he entered into a, a family that it says there was no room for them in the inn, um, which, which is kind of fascinating to, th- to think about. And, and we see the word inn, and I'm going to ruin like every Christmas pageant you've ever see, seen um, in, in a few moments. I'm so sorry about this. But that word inn actually doesn't mean um, inn, like a hotel inn, like a, like a ramada or a holiday inn. It's actually the, the Greek word um, kataluma, which means guest room. Um, when talking about, Jesus talking about the Good Samaritan uh, in that story, and he paid for someone to, to the inn to keep him, he uses a different Greek word. He uses um, the Greek word um, pandachuen. Okay, this is lots of Greek for you, lots of fun. It's not the same word. See, the word that was used in this text is the word for guest room. There's no guest room for him, which is so weird because Joseph is going to his his family lineage. It would be like you going to where your family is from. So maybe you, my, my parents grew up in, in San Antonio, and so we have cousins in San Antonio, and so it'd be like us traveling to San Antonio and, and arriving there and, and them saying, I'm sorry, we have no place for you. And it's so odd that, that a pregnant teenager would have no place in the house. One writer writes it this way. He says, we can't be dogmatic about this, but perhaps a word had spread about her questionable pregnancy and they didn't want to be seemingly approving of her shame by making room for her even in the guest room. Whatever the dynamic might be, Mary and Joseph find themselves among some animals. See, Isaiah 53 says this, he grew up before him like a young plant Like a root from the ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. See, Jesus didn't come looking like your celebrity of choice. He didn't come to the wealthy palaces of the world. He went to an impoverished couple. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And and, and why? 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 Why did the king of glory enter into such a dingy situation? It's because the God of the universe is saying to all of us, I'm here to meet with you. I'm accessible to anyone. I'm accessible to everyone. I want everyone to know that I know exactly what you've been through. I know exactly what life is like, and I'm here for you. Have you ever felt rejected? So was Jesus. Have you ever felt misunderstood? So was Jesus. Have you ever felt like you're the outsider? So has Jesus. Have you ever felt like you're the disappointment of your family? So has Jesus. Have you ever felt unwanted? So has Jesus. Glory entered into non-beautiful humanity and he became rejected Why? So that you could be accepted. He experienced the rejection of the world so that he could bring peace to the world, so that you could be accepted. He wrote himself into the story so that you can know the God of the universe. And there's no one that that cannot come through Jesus Christ to him. 
He's arranging all of history. He writes himself into the story. And lastly, he invites the lowly. Verse 8 says, In that same region where the shepherds were out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. And an angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And I, I don't know if you've really dug into the details. I hadn't really dug into the details. But if you were sending the king of the universe into the world, who would you tell? I figure he would go tell Caesar or go tell the important people living in Jerusalem. I mean, go tell the who's who. Go tell the most significant people. But who do the angels appear to? They, they appear to some shepherds. Shepherds in that culture were were lowly, of of low-valued people. They were day laborers. They're the people that build our homes. They're the people that take our trash. They're the people that we may look past and look over and not give a second thought to. Who does God want to announce the message to? Is it Caesar and Caesar's palace? No. He goes to a field to some day laborers and said, I want to tell you about the coming king, which doesn't make sense to me. Um, my, my family and I, uh, we, we were uh, amazingly privileged for my wife, my daughter, and I to get tickets to the Nutcracker performance, um, and we went and saw it a, 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 a few days ago, and it was absolutely amazing, and we went there to the Wortham Theater. I have a picture of the Wortham Theater, and it is amazing. I mean, you talk about the, one of the most beautiful venues I've ever been to. I mean, the, and, and not only that, the settings that they had created in a full orchestra and, and these amazing dancers that were absolutely phenomenal. And, and as, I, as I sat there in the Wortham Theater, surrounded by all of this beauty, all of this beautiful architecture, this amazing, immaculate environment, and the dancers going, I look around and I see everyone who's very pretty. Like, I was there, but everyone else was, was very pretty. I mean, the best dresses, the best suits, and, and all of it made sense to me. I mean, if you're going to put that much energy into those dancers, if you're going to put that much money into that orchestra, if you're going to build all of these sets, of course you want to perform it in a beautiful venue that's top-notch, the most pristine of places. Of course, this is what it looks like. And then I thought about it, I'm like, I'm like what if, what if, what if the Houston Ballet decided, no, instead of performing in the Wortham Theater, we're going to go to one of, one of the underpasses, one of the bridges in the worst parts of Houston. And, and we're going to bring that orchestra out here. And we're going to bring these ballet dancers that are trained professionals. And we're going to put on the performance of our lives in front, in front of a few people that we invite in. 
Or maybe they'd go out to to a, a rustic small town west of Houston and just invite a, a few people that, that are day laborers, those five or six people, and, and they put on this pristine, beautiful performance that they spent years of their life preparing for, for these nobodies. Some of us might say, well, that seems like a waste of time. That's because we don't think like God thinks. That's because our economy is very different than God's economy because because when God was preparing the arrival of his son, he spared no expense. See, first an angel comes and tells the shepherds, I'm gonna tell you good news of great joy. And then after they had said that, suddenly a multitude, a host of angels appear. A host means an army. And I don't know what angels dress in, but I promise you, whatever they were wearing, it was their best because they were glowing bright. And the shepherds are amazed that God who arranged all of history, God who wrote himself into the story, would come and invite someone so lowly. See, that is the beautiful story of Christmas. The God who created the stars and the heavens. The God who created everything comes to lowly people like you and me. He says, I've arranged it all for you to be in this place that you might know me. I'm the King of kings I'm the Lord of lords. He is the king of the universe who has arranged all of human history. There are no accidents or afterthoughts. He's arranged history with you in mind. The king entered into the story. And if you're willing, he'll write himself into the story of your life. And every person that worshiped at the feet of Caesar is forgotten and lost. His home lay in ruins. No one cares. But this small couple and these insignificant shepherds were celebrating today, why? because they were written into the story of God. What about you? Have you come to the feet of the newborn king who didn't stay a baby? He was the king that was born to die. And 30-ish years later, he's gonna go hang on a cross. And as they're hurling insults at him, still rejecting him, you know what he says on the cross? He doesn't say, I'm going to get you. You'll understand later. He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This king doesn't use his power to subjugate people. He uses his power to bring life and hope and joy and peace. 
there's hope in this king. And he's inviting the lowly, people like you and me, to come celebrate the newborn king. As with all of our services, we have an opportunity to respond. Our prayer team is going to come forward. And as they do, for many of you, you may have heard these ideas before about Jesus coming to earth. But maybe, maybe God has sprinkled it in a new way for you. Maybe you've actually never put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you've never bowed to Jesus. You know the greatest gift that you can give God? It's nothing you make. It's nothing you buy. It's simply coming with open hands saying, Jesus, I'm done trying to be my own king. I'm going to lay myself before you. Our team is here to pray with you. So for some of you, if you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, today is a great day to do that. For others of you, uh, maybe there's a, a particular ailment that you have, a particular sickness that you have. We believe that this Jesus who, who lives can heal. So we want to pray for you. Or maybe you have a friend or a family member that is so far from God and you've been praying for him. Well, come forward. We want to pray with you today. As, as the band comes up, they're going to lead us in um, a song and I'll come back up and transition us to the next part of our service. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Tomball app to find community in the body of Christ.